0: and actually has a lot to do with what we just talked about with the kids. Um, and I want us to consider this. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV and unfortunately, I'm doing the NIV because a lot of us use the NIV, which frankly, I like a lot, but actually the ESV is probably a little bit better translation of this passage than NIV, but I'm, I'm still stuck in my ways. So we're reading from the NIV. Let me read for you. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. and In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, because I like him in his death and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text and, that, and this wonderful reminder of what it is that really matters Uh, what it is uh, to be a disciple of christ and we pray father that your holy spirit would speak to us according to our need from your passage and that you would build within us a real eagerness to know you by knowing your word i pray in christ jesus amen Uh, years ago when our kids were little my parents would fly us to california every christmas so that we could be with the family. And this was a wonderful uh, and very generous gift. And in order to get a nonstop flight, even though we lived near San Jose, we'd always fly to San Francisco and this made things easier for the kids. On the way home, we'd always take the red eye so the kids could sleep. On one particular trip home, I spent the entire flight talking to a young man about theology. He was in his early 20s and had recently become a Christian and was very excited about his faith, and on top of that was in the process of being discipled by a somewhat older man for whom he had great esteem. Our conversation was stimulating, it was a lot of fun, as well as encouraging, and made the flight seem very short. As we were on our approach to Logan, we were talking about baptism, and then he said this to me. You understand, of course, that to be saved, you have to be baptized, and most importantly, baptized in the true church, which is my church, the Boston Church of Christ. My head snapped around, and I said, what? (laughs) And he went on to explain that he was a member of the Boston Church of Christ, which was, he believed, the true church, and that to be saved, one must be baptized by immersion by his church. I began to wonder, was there something that I failed to pick up in those five hours of conversation that would have shown how different our views were? Well, as we got closer to landing, I began a whirlwind refutation of his position and that of his churches, which I learned later was considered by many to be a cult. He was confused and puzzled by what I had to say. And he kept saying that I should talk to his discipler who would be picking him up at the airport. It was as if the young man was dependent upon his mentor and could not think on his own. Now, Granted, he had recently come to faith in Christ, but he sure knew a lot of scripture. Sure enough, at the baggage carousel, he brought up his mentor who began to talk to me about my errors, my mistaken views. Now it was not the best time for a discussion with three tired children and the need to collect our bags, but I did talk to him for about five minutes or so until he walked off with his disciple, and it was very clear that he was not pleased that his mentee had spent five hours talking theology with an outsider. Later, I I looked into the Boston Church of Christ and was disturbed by what I found. I learned that disciples are given direction on every aspect of their lives, from church attendance and giving to dating habits or personal relationships, from where to live, and a multitude of decisions in between. The lives of the disciples are closely regulated and controlled. They also did not allow outside teaching that may be contrary to their interpretation of the truth. And this would explain why the young man kept referring to his mentor and why the mentor was not happy with me. The leadership of the Boston Church of Christ maintained that this was all done, all these legalisms, all these specific things tied to their church was all done to the glory of God. Besides being very sad by this experience, and and that sadness had a lot to do with this young man because he was very eager. I was also disappointed in myself. And the one major takeaway I had from that experience is just how important studying the Word of God is. Now, I'm not talking about a cursory, dutiful, devotional read, but digging in and allowing the full Word of God to guide our theology. As many of you know, J.I. Packer, the British theologian and prolific writer, went into the presence of the King on July 17th. Packer, one of the most humble and soft-spoken men I have ever heard said this about the importance of knowing the Word of God. Congregations in every age must see themselves as learning communities in which gospel truth has to be taught, defended, and vindicated against corruptions of it and alternatives to it. Being alert to all aspects of the difference between true and false teaching and of behavior that expresses the truth as distinct from obscuring it, is vital to the church's health. In our text this morning, we find the Apostle Paul once again warning the body of Christ against the schemes of one of the most egregious opponents, the Judaizers. The Judaizers, as I'm sure you know, were not unconverted Jews, but rather false teachers who identified themselves with the broader Christian community. But the problem was is that they could not let go of the Jewish rituals and therefore taught and demanded that all Gentile believers needed to be circumcised as though it was essential to their salvation. They wanted Gentile Christians to become Jews in practice. Paul saw these teachers as being both dangerous to the spread of Christianity and propagators of grievous doctrinal error. The Judaizers consisted the bulk of those who opposed Paul. And in fact, throughout his epistles, we see, as we see in our text, Paul aggressively confronted these false teachers. Even the epistle of Romans, which appears to many as a calmly reasoned doctrinal exposition, has to be understood, if you will, as a set of answers to the kinds of objections the Judaizers had been advancing for years against Paul's insistent teaching of justification by grace through faith. In our text, and in fact, all the way through chapter four, verse one, Paul is echoing all of his basic concerns that preceded in the letter, such as Paul's strong emphasis on the centricity of Christ, where in verse eight of our text, he says that I may gain Christ, which recalls chapter one, verse 21, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. His emphasis on his participation in the sufferings of Christ in verses 10 and 11 recalls, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And also in 2.17, he says the same thing, he also reemphasizes the eschatological hope in verses 11, 14, and in 20 and 21, which recalls the primary theme of chapters one and two. And we could go on. The point is, what Paul has said earlier now anchors the message of these verses as he instructs the church about these false teachers, the very ones he alluded to earlier in the letter. Somehow these Judaizers have wormed their way into the Philippian congregation and were having an effect on the church. And Paul wants them to be seen as they truly are and therefore disreg- discarded. So Paul now transitions towards the final matter to be addressed. He begins in verse one with, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> he begins his final appeal by picking up the imperative rejoice from chapter two, verse 18. Not only is this the theme, is a theme in the letter, as Paul uses that word rejoice eight times, and why in fact we've entitled the sermon series, Joy No Matter What. But this reminder serves, serves as a framework for which re, the audience is about to hear. That is the final warning and appeal. Now it's interesting that he uses strikingly, strikingly emotive language as he prepares to address the issue of the false teacher. But I wonder if it is because regardless of these Judaizers, God is faithful to his church and he will see them through whatever struggles or controversies they must face. And what a better way there is there to face challenges than to rejoice in the Lord. God has proven himself time and time again to be faithful to his people, regardless of what they may face. It's unthinkable that under pressure of present sufferings or challenges that they should lose their joy in belonging to the Lord. The more we rejoice in Christ, the more willing we shall be to do and suffer for him. And the less danger we will be in and being drawn away from our Lord. As Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. What matters most of all is not that they know God, but the but the larger fact that he knows them and therefore is with the church. It's clear from the second part of verse 1, as well as in 3.18, that Paul has spoken about the Judaizers before. Their attempted influence upon the church, whether at this writing of the epistle or earlier, is very serious. And Paul wants to be very clear in stressing the severity of the situation and and so is not bothered at all by yet again warning them, and in so doing urging the Philippian church to be on their guard. To appreciate the force of the second verse, we need to understand Paul's language is not accurately described as being insulting or abusive. It's argued that Paul has carefully chosen his terms to achieve intense irony, not merely to harshly speak down upon these false teachers. Three times, the apostle warns the Philippians to be on their guard. And while the NIV does not catch the tone that is presented in the Greek text, the ESV does. The ESV translates verse two as, look out for those dogs. Look out for the unbelievers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The first description of what they are to watch out for or dogs, or curs. In English, to call someone a dog is an insulting term used of people who are worthless and vile. For the Jews, the term had a distinctly religious sense. It referred to Gentiles, those people who were outside of the covenantal community and were considered ritually unclean. When Jesus drew a comparison between the Syrophoenician woman and dogs in Mark 7:27. The woman recognized the analogy, not as a vulgar insult, but as a religious statement. Paul, therefore, is making a startling point. The great reversal brought in by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ means that it is the Judaizers who must be regarded as the Gentiles. This theme is further developed with the next two descriptions, the term evildoers is meant to refute the Judaizers' claims that they were doing the works of the law. And while they believed what they were doing was good works, in reality, their works were evil. The Judaizers were earthly-minded whose teachings led them to the works of the flesh. And in this way, they too were spiritual Gentiles. Now, no epistle speaks more about the false teaching of the Judaizers than the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, 3 through 6, Paul says this about them. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness of which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Legalistic works of the flesh accomplish nothing towards salvation. And then finally, the third phrase is the most scathing. These false teachers, Paul argues, do not deserve to be called the circumcision, but rather mutilators of the flesh. When Jewish rituals were practiced in a spirit that contradicts the message of the gospel, these rituals lost their true significance and became no better than pagan practices. For Gentile Christians living in Galatia, the adoption of Jewish ceremonies was tantamount to becoming enslaved all over again to their pre-Christian rituals. And this is Paul's point in Galatians 4.9. But you now that know God, or rather are known by God, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And moreover, Paul's reference to the mutilation in Galatians 5.12 may be, among other things, an allusion to barbaric pagan customs. So here in our text, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of their pride, and interprets it as a surest sign that they have no share among God's people, and in fact, are again, the true Gentiles. Now, Paul continues this line of thought as he sharply draws the contrast between the Judaizers and Christian believers, including Gentiles, by saying, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Again, the Christians are the true Jews, not the Judaizers. Now, this is an extraordinarily important point for Paul, who was often accused as re- of rejecting the importance of the Old Testament, such as in Acts 21.21. 21. The Book of Romans, in particular, answers this charge by arguing that the gospel, far from opposing the Old Testament, fulfills it. In the same way, Galatians 3 is devoted to proving that those who are united with Christ through faith are the true seed of Abraham. If it were otherwise, Paul would have had the upper hand on these false teachers. In verses 4 through 6, he begins boasting of his Jewish credentials. But why do this at all? The Judaizers who threatened the Philippian church no doubt appealed to their own impressive impressive Jewish background. In support of their message. In Paul's case, he uses his own Jewish credentials as a foil that follows in verses seven through to what follows in verses seven through 11. And his point, while they sound impressive, are absolutely worthless. That is his credentials. Of the seven clauses in in which he presents the quality of his Jewishness. The first four describe privileges that Paul acquired by virtue of his birth. He points to his circumcision, being of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and the Hebrew of Hebrews. Here's why he lists these four. His circumcision was done according to the law, which only Hebrew parents would be concerned about. He's of the people of Israel, In other words, he's not a convert to Judaism. Third, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, while the tribe of Benjamin was not looked upon with all great esteem, nonetheless, it was a tribe. And you couldn't be a part of that tribe unless you were an Israelite. And finally, Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that his family had not adopted the way of the Hellenists as many Hebrew families had. The last two clauses stress the voluntary choices that Paul made, and these demonstrate his religious fervor as a Jew. He tells us in Galatians 1.14 that he was advancing in Judaism well beyond many Jews his own age, and was extremely zealous for the tradition of his fathers, all of which culminated in Paul becoming a Pharisee. And then Paul goes on to prove the sincerity and the intensity of his prior religious commitment by using an expression of intense irony. Condemning what he exalted in his former self, he persecuted the church. In Galatians 1.13, he's even more forceful in his declaration. I used to persecute intensely the church of God, and I even tried to destroy it. Here's the irony. He now loves the church and will do all in his power to protect the church, no matter what the cost may be. And then he adds in verse six, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And this speaks to Paul's record as far as Torah observances were concerned, which means he scrupulously adhered to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law with its finely honed regulations for Sabbath observances, dietary laws, and ritual cleanliness, the very things that matter deeply to the Judaizers. Well, Paul's point is, none of this has anything to do with righteousness at all. At at, at what he once excelled, he now knows is empty and has no value. The future lies with the present. That is knowing Christ. Looking back is to look at nothing at all. As I think, of, I think about these Judaizers, I think of those who have formed their own theology without fully understanding the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. As we've said before, the Jews looked for a different kind of Messiah. And while the Judaizers had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they still could not let go of the things that they held so dear, the things to which their culture held tightly. And so they formed their own brand of Christianity not understanding that righteousness is not something we earn by acting a certain way, but rather is a gift given to us by God that makes us clean in his eyes. I wonder if the Judaizers had spent more time in the prophets rather than in the law, they would have seen things differently. Who knows? But we do know that throughout the history of the church, the evil one has been pleased to use our weaknesses against Christ's church, twisting the gospel message into something that it is not. There has been heresy after heresy after heresy. And I fear that today the church has become far too casual about doctrine, and out of so-called love, has attempted to twist scripture to make it more palatable to a culture that has rejected Christ. In so doing, we may have thought that we were helping, but I fear we are doing far more damage, just as the Judaizers had done. And then as we turn to verses 7 through 11, we see that Paul is, if you will, revising the balance sheet. You can almost sense his excitement, his joy, as he says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, because like him in his death, and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. God delights in turning things upside down, doesn't he? Salvation won by Jesus on the cross is the great reversal of the fall of man. When one repents and turns to Christ, they are turning or reversing their direction. And Paul's experience in his own great reversal as he learned what he once held dear was nothing compared to what he found in Christ. In this passage, one can hear the excitement and great joy as he urges the Philippians to remember who they are in Jesus. The message of the gospel is thrilling to Paul, and I hope it is to us. As it begins this final section of our text, this reversal theme continues with imagery of commerce and the marketplace. All that he had, that is his profit or his gain, is now loss. Not only are his previous assets as a Jew a loss, but in fact, they are not only useless, they're rubbish. In the process of reevaluation, Paul perceived with horror that the things he had valued up to his conversion and viewed as benefiting him had in reality been working against him and ultimately would destroy him. Oh, how great are the riches found in Christ Jesus. A striking feature in verses 9, 10, and 11 is the way that these verses reflect a distinction among the three basic categories present in the application of salvation. The first is justification, that is righteousness through faith, presented in verse 9. The second is sanctification, that is experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection, as our lives are changed, as we become transformed, as well as participating in his sufferings, which Paul speaks about in verse 10. The stinging reality of Christian suffering is, uh, is our reminder that we have been united with Christ. More than that, it is the very means that God uses to transform us into the image of his son. It's not easy being different or going against the flow of humanity but that is what the gospel calls us to do. When we come to Christ, we reverse our course and begin to go against the flow of the rest of humanity. Behaviors that they consider consider normal, we understand now to be evil. And while going against the flow is very hard, as it's easy to get swept up with the cultural tide of humanity, it also can be costly. But as Paul tells us, following Christ is worth whatever cost we must pay. Now, I have to stop here for a second. Paul, throughout his letter, has expressed his willingness to suffer for Christ for the sake of the gospel. And here yet again is another irony. Paul, before his conversion, was all about bringing suffering to those who profess faith in Christ. And now he embraces suffering for the sake of Christ talk about the transformational work of our Lord Jesus. And then finally, the third, which is found in verse 11 is, is glorification. That is the resurrection from the dead. So we have justification, sanctification, and, and glorification presented in these four five verses. Now it's puzzling in this final statement of faith that Paul says, somehow, to attain the resurrection of the dead. Now that word, somehow, seems troubling. What does he mean by this, especially when compared to the many verses in his epistles that stress the assurance that the Christian has eternal life? John Calvin's response to this question was to say that Paul wanted to impress upon us the difficulties, struggles, and hindrances that attend a believer's life. The apostle would remind us that even he must watch and pray continually to abide in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. There is a tension that exists between the assurance of faith and our need to persevere. The Christian cannot coast, but must continue on in his faith, desiring to go further and further in his relationship with Christ. And I also think that the following verses clarify Paul's, verse, uh, Paul's point. He says in verses 12 to 14, Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, it's quite possible that maybe in Philippi there was a heresy of perfectionism that was was rising up. And that Paul is addressing that, that we don't arrive until we arrive, if you will. There's always more to learn about Jesus. There's always the need to be on our guard, never thinking that we have arrived. We'll never arrive until we arrive in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's never a point where we can sit back on our laurels and say, yes, I am the Christian I have always wanted to be. I have made it. I realize that nobody would ever verbalize this, but perhaps we may think it, especially if we begin to compare ourselves with other Christian brothers and sisters. But what a terrible mistake this is. To do this is to let our guard down and open a door for the evil one. Well, from our text this morning, there are three things I want to leave you with. First, I know that we're all facing challenges that we've never faced before. And we're probably feeling overwhelmed and uncertain about the future. And I'm sure you're tired of being reminded of that. But when we worry, our focus begins to turn to ourselves and we become consumed with the what ifs, consumed with ourselves. Or we become upset that our life is not what it once was and we want it back have want back that which we can never have and these thoughts or concerns put the focus again on us we need our focus to be on jesus and paul says to rejoice in the lord remember eight times he stresses this in his letters letter do we think the philippians did not have their own struggles or for that matter paul of course not so we must remember as nehemiah said the joy of the lord is our strength Focus on what Christ has done for us, certainly throughout our lives, but most importantly, what He's done upon the cross. Celebrate Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that we merrily go tripping through life, thinking, you know, you know, this cancer is a breeze. Oh, you know, we're celebrating these things that are terrible. No, I don't mean that, but I mean a deeper sense of joy, a deeper sense of understanding that God is sovereign even over these things. And if God has loved me so much to send Jesus to die on the cross for me, then he is going to see me through these things. And by God's grace, I will pay attention to what he's teaching me in the midst of these things, that I would become all the more dependent upon the Lord Jesus and less dependent on the things that are seen. And second, from where I began in my introduction, in my little illustration for the kids about the fruit, We need to saturate saturate ourselves in the word of God and not be satisfied with a daily cursory read of the Bible. We need to dig in. We need to know God's word because by knowing God's word, we know God. And not only do we learn about the wonder of our God and his love for us, but we also learn what is right and true and are made able to discern the truth from falsehoods. Remember, Satan's on the prowl. And he's looking to take us down, whether it be through individual temptation or through false teaching. He doesn't care. He wants to take us down. He despises us. He despises the church. He wants nothing less than to see us destroyed. We need to know God, not just know about him. And in knowing him, love him and serve him with our whole hearts. And finally, I would say, as Paul is encouraging the Philippians, and as he said in chapter one, we need to eagerly press on with joy, no matter what, and do so together. We need to encourage one another to persevere in the faith to which we've been called. We need to stand in the gap for one another. We need to carry each other along, remembering what lies ahead and not looking behind. The church is not about individualism. Uh, The church is about community. Community matters so much, because in that community, we find the love, we see the love of God demonstrated to us by our brothers and sisters, but we also find the encouragement of knowing that we're pressing on together. One of the best things, even on Zoom, but also especially when I stand in the pulpit, as I look out and I see all your faces, And I can see there's Chris and Liz Martin. They're persevering. And there's Zach and Diane. They're persevering. And there's Bill and Sandy Toms. They're persevering. That is a wonderful thing to see and to remember that we are doing, we are in this journey together. So let us encourage each other, as Paul is doing to the Philippians, let us encourage to press on together that we might glorify Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you are the God of our salvation and our eternal hope and that you are sovereign. Uh, Lord, uh, we are so weak. Help us. Uh, We we need you every moment of our lives. Forgive us for those times when we look inward and we, we begin to look and struggle and frantically search for ways to solve our problems rather than laying them before you and coming to you and asking you to show us how to go. Help us, Lord, to know your word, to want to know it, not simply to to be able to check off that we've done our devotion by reading a couple passages of scriptures, but really wanting to know it, to engage in Bible study together so we may learn together, or even to engage in our own private study. Help us in that, Father. And finally, let us remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.